0: Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Mike? Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're
1: Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast.
0: <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a pair of fantastic musicians who've been intimately involved with each other's lives and work for the past decade and a half, Kate Lebon and Hugh Evans. Now, Lebon and Evans each have their own incredible discographies, but they wouldn't really have been the same without each other. They're not in a band together, but each has been a key component of the other's work over the years, starting when they were young and romantically involved. Though they're no longer in that kind of relationship, they're still a huge part of each other's lives, and as you'll hear in this conversation... They like to give each other shit, to the point where, while recording, I wasn't sure if there was some real hostility happening. There wasn't, as you'll hear. Evans records under the name H. Hawkline, and this week he'll release his fifth album, Milk for Flowers. It's his most personal and intense yet, though strong emotions remain shrouded in what he once called, quote, strange pop. Hawkline first found a bit of fame in his and Laban's native Wales as a TV presenter, but found his musical voice with a unique blend of classic-sounding songwriting flecked with psychedelic and folk influences. He's worked with Tim Presley of White Fence a bunch. As you'll hear, Presley even played a pivotal, non-musical role in the creation of Milk for Flowers. Laban produced the album, helping to shepherd some intense feelings onto tape. Here's a little bit of the title track from Milk for Flowers.
2: I came clean
0: Evans was right there at the start of Laban's career, as you'll hear in this chat. They were living together, and he convinced her to start playing her otherworldly songs outside of their house. He even had to come up with her stage name in order to create a flyer. What may or may not have been a reference to Duran Duran singer Simon Laban stuck. The two eventually moved to Los Angeles together and continued making music. Laban has amassed an unforgettable discography. You know immediately when you hear her music. Jeff Tweedy once said he could always tell when it was Laban playing guitar, which sounds like a compliment to me. Bond's latest album is last year's Pompeii, a grand, height-of-the-pandemic record that feels like an amazing high-wire act, with saxophone, clarinet, and synthesizers all complementing her voice, guitar, and bass. And it's a matter of some debate, as you'll hear, whether Evans contributed any bass as well. Check out a little bit of Remembering Me from Pompeii. In addition to giving each other grief about song titles and bass parts, the two talk about their history together, about how Laban narrowly avoided recording a song that sounded like Jane's Addiction, their different writing styles, and about how the story of Laban's first gig was like, quote, a shit indie film. Enjoy.
2: I would never speak English to you if it was just the two of us in a room. Mm. It feels quite unusual.
1: Yeah, and I suppose it's a good uh, get out clause if this ends up being terrible. (laughs) It was because we had to do it in English.
2: If we'd have done it in Welsh, it would have been hilarious.
1: You're in Cardiff. I'm in Los Angeles. What
2: are you doing in Los Angeles?
1: I've been doing some production in Mm -hmm. Chicago, and then I came here to work with a friend in between and do some writing and, yeah, work on some pieces. Mm. And then I go back to Chicago to mix and stuff.
2: I was going to ask, actually, even though I think I'd like this to predominantly be about me, but I was wondering... Yeah. You've been quite busy consistently for the last couple of years. Yeah. I was wondering where you find the time to do when you're writing.
1: I don't know, when you're kind of surrounded by instruments all the time, you know, if I'm in the studio with bands or stuff, then there's always little moments where you can pick up a guitar or sit by a piano and, you know, I do play a lot of guitar when I'm having morning coffee or, you know, before I go to bed. I spend a lot of time alone these days, which lends itself to, to get bits of writing in. Yeah.
2: You're going to say, which is, you know, heaven. And I was going to go, yeah, damn straight.
1: I don't know if it's the same with you, actually. I should know. But I was thinking about this idea of a, you know, of a of a writing process. And I think, I guess a little bit of background. You and I moved to Los Angeles together 10 years ago, right?
2: Was it 10 years ago?
1: It was 10 years ago, and we were in a we were romantically involved for 12 years.
2: We were just friends.
1: I think that's where it went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we both, I think we both got a little bit fatigued in Cardiff, right? And we didn't have any money, and mm. it was raining all the time, and we got given these, not given, they cost a lot of money, these visas to go and work in, in America, and we got granted three-year visas, so we just... And I, I still kind of can't believe we just did it, you know, but we just we moved to L.A.
2: I don't know if this is the same for you, but I would find it difficult to live in any other city or any other country in the U.K. even other than Wales. As in because we can I felt like for a while we toyed with maybe we'd move to Todmorden outside Manchester.
1: Did we? Yeah.
2: <laughs> Yeah. And I think at one point we spoke about maybe moving to London, but I, yeah. it's, it's odd for me to think that L.A. seemed like an easier, more obvious move.
1: Just being able to sit in the sun surrounded by, you know, all these kind of beautiful trees and cacti and flowers was like a, I don't know, felt like, well, what else do you need? I guess that's when we kind of first made a record. You know, that's when we were going there because I was going to make a record in L.A., and that's when I said to think, well, shit, this is getting realer than it has before. What is my writing process? And I don't know if you'd remember, I'd sit in that kind of hallway, trying to just trying to write, and it just didn't. I, I, I couldn't. You know, I can't just sit down and and write. I don't have a a, a you know a place where I go and I'm really prolific or whatever but I do have a set of conditions that I think I need to to get anything done and I'm starting to I'm starting to uh, figure out what they are.
2: <laughs> I don't think of you as somebody who labors over you know whereas I think I'm more somewhere I'll come up with an idea and I'll just I'll play it constantly I'll pick up a guitar and I'll just be you know and i will playing the same thing over and again whereas I think you always struck me as somebody who, who songs almost came quite fully formed. So you'd sort of say, oh, I think I've got an idea for a song and you'd almost be able to play it from start to finish. The last album I just recorded that we worked on together and maybe Mug Mm -hmm. Museum, but maybe only because that's the last time I was around you during the writing process. I feel like both, I mean, that album for me, maybe for different reasons, it felt quite easy for me to Right, and it felt like the first thing I've written, which is a one, it's a kind of a whole album. Hmm. And I think Mug Museum was like that maybe for you compared to some of your earlier records.
1: I like the idea of a record feeling like it's, you know, carved from the, the same rock. Hmm. There are a lot of records I love that are, you know, recorded in lots of different studios, written in lots of different places, different band on each song, you know. And I, um, But for me, I, there's something that makes me feel kind of antsy about that you know everything has to kind of be this uh unified thing on a record
2: it's funny because where has that come from because all of your records have recorded that way mine have all been recorded that way so I wonder who is that do you think from i'm imagining is it
1: i don't i, I don't know i guess when we came to do mug museum in la and that would have been the first time that we would have recorded in you know a studio with a producer and uh, I guess previously you know the kindness of Chrissy Jenkins was you know who yeah. would let us go and, and record and explore and figure out how to be in a studio which I'm you know endlessly grateful for and I guess you know you when you have a very limited budget you figure out how to make a record mm. quickly don't you you know two weeks in a studio you you
2: get, get your friends to produce because they do you a really good price
1: <laughs> yeah still yeah <laughs> Our rates have gone down for you, <laughs> <laughs> and I enjoy a sound that returns on a record. I enjoy your motif sometimes that returns on a record, or you, mm. you know, the drums all sound the same, or you know, you 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 feel some of the process when you're listening to it, even if it's a shadow on the wall, you know. And but you know, last record, I guess you were around for a lot of that, right? And that mm. was. That was because of the pandemic. It was a very different process. And I think it's good for the process to evolve in a sense.
2: But it's funny because your evolution was born out of, in a way, a technical devolution because you you know, recorded it all in the house in Cardiff. You know, the, the natural trajectory is, oh, bigger studios, you know, a, a larger cast of people. Whereas with that album, it probably feels like the biggest, I would say, step forward or, or, or felt like one of the most different records you've made in a while, but it was born out of, But it, strangely, the studio-wise, you went back to, and recorded it. It's a bedroom album, in a way, and it's more than that, but... <laughs> you've basically done a bedroom pop record.
1: Thanks, mate. <laughs> That's
2: right, pal. But do you know what I, I mean?
1: Yeah, I do. Yeah, who's recording in a bedroom? <laughs> <laughs> and you went to Rockfield, a big fancy studio.
2: Yeah, I did the opposite.
1: But it's funny, the studio I was working in in Chicago... Um, summer dry cleaning came in to visit and they were talking about Rockfield and asking if I'd ever been there because naturally, they I think they assume because I'm Welsh and it's just down the road from Cardiff I would have utilised it. But it was always a studio that felt really inaccessible to me because it's where all the yeah. big, you know, the big rock bands went. And I remember, you know, visiting the furries there once with Cat and just being like, oh my god, you know, this is like another, it's a whole new world of something that isn't for us, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's really funny that you've recorded that. <laughs> 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 it's like you going, oh, I don't have much budget to pay you, Kate. <sighs> oh, cool. Where are we making the record? Uh, Rockfield. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's me to a tea, isn't it really?
1: I mean kinda, yeah, but I loved working there, and I think that for the record you wanted to make, it was a great
2: choice being able to just go somewhere and stay there for the whole recording process and not having to go home every day, you really kind of you're able to sort of immerse yourself in what you're doing and you wake it's it's the only thing you think about the outside world stops existing, and it's just all about the people that you're playing with and the thing that you're working on and I think because of the personal nature of the record and I think being able to just go away to record it and lock ourselves in that space and be able to kind of live live it for a couple of weeks or ten days, however long we were there, I think benefited the music and the process.
1: It is a very personal record to you. It felt it felt safe. It felt like, you know, yeah, that everyone was taking care of each other and you know, you have one of the you had one of the greatest guitar players we know chefing for you all week right <laughs> you know you really know how to put <laughs> to use people
2: <laughs> tim you happen to be over in the uk whilst i'm recording i'd love yeah. you to be a part of my album we yeah. need a chef <laughs> yeah. he did play some amazing guitar as well
1: but the importance of his presence for you when it was you know quite a vulnerable record and you know something that he understands and his and this isn't to you know to diminish him as a musician because i think later in the process he played some of the Best guitar on the record, aside from um, some bits. I think I laid down.
2: Um, <laughs> you actually don't play guitar on this record. But if you want to, oh, if you want to, if you want to get into, if you want to play the who plays what on whose oh, album, no, we don't. can do it. At, we'll wrap it up with a, No, let's. I've got some of your records here. We'll go through song by song, and we can work out who plays. Oh, what. It,
1: it's fine. It's Are you fine. sure? Yeah, I don't think you should spend this time diminishing a woman's efforts. <laughs>
2: <laughs> nice. Yeah. nice.
1: I think we're really fortunate from, you know, the scene in Cardiff and playing music with, you know, best friends and people you trust and love, the importance of having people who you trust and love around, you know, regardless mm-hmm. of the, what everyone's playing or not playing. It's the same with the people who you take on tour. It'd be really considerate and careful about who you, you, you know, you choose to spend that time with and share this, you know, incredible thing with because it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's important, isn't it? You know, to have people around you who you can trust and lean on and, you know, who will be completely honest with you. I think over the years we've all kind of gone off at different trajectories but we always, you know, pool come back together when somebody is in need of you mm. know a little bit of comfort or a little bit of guidance or just to be mm. you know heard so I think it's um you know a joke about Tim Sheffing but I could see how important it was for you because you've also always been a huge fan of his mm. but on a personal level the kind of him just going this is fucking great you. you meant so much to you.
2: I think musically, but also lyrically. Yeah, I think, yeah, having him there as somebody who, you know, we have a sort of shared experience of something. And and I think having you there as well, you know, you're lucky if you can, you know, having a friend who you can say, oh, could you produce an album for me is great. But when you're also you know, the first reason for asking you is because you're one of my favorite producers. The fact that you're my friend and you know me really well is a bonus on top of that. You know, I would mm. that what comes first is the the trust I have in you as a producer that I know that, you know, when it comes to arrangements or helping me build the record that I trust all of your decisions, maybe on the way there we fall out and I disagree with you and I get and I have a sulk when you tell me to play less when I'm playing bass. But eventually we get there in the end and I know that yeah. you'll be right. But what I think also with this album, you know, some of the lyrics aren't poetry. They're just statements of things that happened mm-hmm. or how I felt. And I think I it was important to have people around me whilst I was doing that, that I didn't have to second guess myself. I could mm-hmm. say these things and mean them in a way that maybe if I was surrounded by people I didn't know or it, I would... Feel embarrassed.
1: That's, again, you know, whether it's touring, whether it's being in a studio, you want to feel completely uninhibited. And,
2: mm. you know,
1: it's, I think it's, you know, a, a, a beautiful thing that often, you know, often you do feel creatively inhibited around people who you've known the longest, you know, that kind of pattern yeah. of people going, well, what are you doing that for? You can't, you're not, you don't do that. Or, you know, mm. and we do, you know, we do, we're horrible we to each pretty, other. Yeah, we're pretty <laughs> brutal. We are pretty horrible to each other, but it doesn't, It it's freeing in a way. Yeah. way. It's not like in, inhibiting, which I think is um, really fortunate.
2: <laughs> We've definitely but, um, been in situations, I think, when other people hear us talking to each other and they're like, wow, you were all really horrible to each yeah, other. Why
1: do you hang out with each other?
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: And I think it's just habit, right?
2: Yeah, but I, I think when you're so comfortable with somebody and you know there isn't, you know, you can... Yeah, I don't know why we do. It's horrible (laughs) thinking about it.
1: I mean, it's familial, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah. It's like, I recall times when someone's misread the situation and they've pitched in and kind of said something really horrible to you and I've gone, don't talk to him like that! (laughs) I guess what I'm trying to say is, even though it is kind of pretty full-on sometimes, it's, it's not restrictive to us all working together. I don't feel inhibited around you i don't feel that if you you know you watch me perform that i feel like oh i I can't you know they'll laugh at me if i do this they Hmm. i I know you'll laugh at me but i know that there will be a lot of support and and love behind it
2: i know this person cares
1: Yeah. yeah yeah
0: Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's Teen Dance Ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of The TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, The Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out.
1: So I guess you were the first person who ever asked me to produce...
0: Yeah,
2: I was actually.
1: Yeah, no, I know. I'm telling you, you don't have oh, to fight fight so. me.
2: <laughs> I think you find it was me. <laughs> no. I was. I remember I signed to Heavenly, and mm. to I, what's funny is I think at the time, to me, it just seemed like an obvious thing because I remember when you worked with Noah on Mug Museum, you know, Noah produced that record. But also he didn't produce it in this. you know, it wasn't as if you went into the studio and you just accepted everything. You know, I think you've always had a really, because with the albums you recorded with Chrissy prior to that, you produced yourself really, you know, you yeah. worked with Jenks but, and, d- but you-
1: Yeah, but I did learn, I did learn a lot from Noah and Joe when it came to kind of that kind of brutal decision making and, you know, preparation and the importance of, you know, Really crafting parts and stuff.
2: It's funny actually talking about being brutal there. I think that's one of the things that immediately enamoured us to Noah as well. Was mm-hmm. I remember we hadn't we hadn't spoken to him before we started recording Music Museum. We'd not met him. He yeah. refused to meet us, which is <laughs> such a power move looking back. And because we and were then, like,
1: "Oh, he's so cool. He won't even meet us."
2: <laughs> and I remember we went into the studio and we did, I think the first song we recorded was Are You With Me Now?
1: Mm-hmm. First take.
2: First song, first take. And yeah. we and just Noah came on the talkback and he was like, yeah, sounds great. Should we move on? And then he was just showing no emotion. And I think we, do you remember we were all, we found that quite, it's like we wanted to break him. We wanted to kind of, you know, we wanted him to like us, but we, we kind of sensed quite early on that the route to that was, what we do to each other, which was kind of be mean. And then I remember we we were recording one song and I can't remember what it was now. And we'd worked on this song and we went up and we were all really excited. We thought it sounded good. And we were like, what do you think? And he was like, yeah, I mean, if you like Jane's Addiction, it sounds great. <laughs> and I remember we all, you know, any in any anybody else in that situation might have taken massive offence and been really hurt by it, but we'd loved to... The- it
1: saved so much time.
2: It did, yeah. And
1: it also means I don't release a song that sounds like Jane's Addiction. <laughs>
2: But I remember asking you to produce my album. It just seemed like the obvious. It just seemed yeah, like an obvious thing to do. Cost you anything? Yeah, it was pretty cheap. Yeah, it cost me something actually.
1: You, <laughs> oh, it cost me. <laughs> yeah.
2: I'm gonna get the accounts up. I'm pretty sure it cost me something as well. I'm oh, gonna...
1: I don't. I don't think you should do that, here.
2: <laughs> no, maybe not.
1: But yeah, and I yeah, it's funny. I, I did because what record was that? Pink of.
2: In the pink of condition.
1: In the pink of condition. We did it at Seahorse.
2: Mm.
1: And also, you know, Samma, who is. An in, like an incredible engineer, and he was so. Again, you know, he's a lot like Chrissy Jenkins, who I spoke about before, who kind of allowed us to go to a studio in Cardiff and allowed us. He never told us anything was wrong or that anything. Anything you know, was
2: possible with Jags. Anything this, was
1: possible. And, yeah, and
2: you could you could say to Sam, uh, "Can we turn this shoe into a guitar?"
1: And he go fuck yeah.
2: And he'd be like. Dude, I've already built a guitar out of a shoe. <laughs> out of shoes. I've got, I've got three. Which one do you want to use? And Jenks was the same. Can you do this? Yeah, you can do anything you want.
1: He'd never say, no, this is the way to do it, or that's wrong. or And and especially, you know, for a woman who's producing for the first time, mm-hmm. expecting there to be some kind of resistance or someone to kind of, I don't know, laugh at you or whatever. Mm-hmm. Samma was just, he was stoked that I was doing it. And he would mm. help me in every single way possible, and he'd teach me things. And it's like no one's competing; everyone's just making this thing together and holding hands, and you know, running running through the forest. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, that record turned out well,
2: right? Yeah, it's okay. I think there's like it's a few good songs on it. I think yeah. you did a great you did a great job, And maybe some of the songs are a bit a bit sketchy.
1: What songs are on that one?
2: Um, don't make me say... Don't make me say them <laughs> out loud.
1: It's there a song called Spooky Dog on
2: it? Yeah, Greatest Song Unto Mankind, it is on it, yeah. <laughs> I like that song. Yeah, it's a good song, but it's one of the ones everybody loves to make fun of me for. I mean, understandably, it's called Spooky Dog.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it's also because if I wrote a song called Spooky Dog, you...
2: <laughs> oh, you'd never hear the end of it.
1: <laughs> no, so it's... I think it's fair.
2: Somebody asked me recently, what do you think Kate brings to your music and what do you bring to hers? And I was thinking that I think with you, because you like to kind of deconstruct. So with my music, I think sometimes I will go for a straighter arrangement or go for an obvious part. And I think you're really good at kind of honing in on what is the actual interesting, interesting thing in the song, and it might be not the first thing that I would think. So there's a kind of dismantling of the song and rebuilding it around that element. Mm. And then I think I if for your music it's the opposite. I feel
1: like there's a real there's a blow coming
2: here. No, not at all. Go on. Well, go I on. just think your music <laughs> is already so deconstructed that I think maybe I play the more obvious thing on your song and make your music more listenable. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh. You haven't played on my records for
2: years here. Uh, that's true, actually. I was thinking because I nearly <laughs> played on... Oh, hang on. Hang on. Um, you set them up. No, I didn't play on the last one. I remember on the last one, there was one song, I think you wanted me to have a shot at playing bass.
1: Uh, no. And then...
2: No, you're mental. I'm not mental, no. I've not made it up. There's no reason for me to... let me wouldn't finish let... the wonderful tale I'm about to tell. <laughs> I would
1: you... let you play bass on my record.
2: No, this is not about who the best bass player is.
1: <laughs> I would never have let you play bass.
2: Oh, this is classic false memory. <laughs> oh you asked God. me, there was one song that you couldn't come up with a bass line for. And you said, do you want to no, have a true. shot? at
1: I said, do you want a shot at this song?
2: You said, do you want to have a shot at the bass on this song? I right. think it could be really good, but my bass lines are just so <laughs> deconstructed that it doesn't, <laughs> they just don't even sound like bass lines.
1: Wow.
2: Okay. I couldn't come up with anything, but also no, B, it was.
1: I remember that. Yeah.
2: It was hard for you. <laughs> I think the best thing about the last record was the fact that everything, every instrument you were able to play, you played it yourself. And if you weren't able to play it yourself, you 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 wrote the parts for other people, which I think is the first time you've done that, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, not, ev- not everything. There were a lot of the saxophone parts that came from Ewan and Steve, I think. Um, and, you know, Stella is... I think I wrote a lot of the record knowing what Stella would kind of almost instinctively play, you know? Yeah. I still don't remember asking you to play bass.
2: It's a strange thing for me to make up, but... Not really. I'm trying to think which song it was. Um, um, what songs
1: are on it again? I don't know. Um, <laughs> no idea. But yeah, well, I suppose in the same way that you you were the first person to ask me to produce.
2: <laughs> I feel like there's a... Uh,
1: no, it's just... No, I, I when I first made a record, mm. and I only started doing gigs because of you. So if anyone wants, yeah, to blame you for that, <laughs> um, because you just were sick of me playing songs in the house, and you just put on a, a just
2: get just get out the house,
1: <laughs> get out the house and play them. Yeah, so you put yeah. on a you booked a show for me and Sweet Babu.
2: Yeah, in a Caribbean restaurant, which is Canada. like
1: a it's almost like a it's like a shit um, indie film. Kind of, yeah, um, yeah. where you, you printed out loads of posters and put them up around the city.
2: And the poster was a photo of a goat, if I remember. It was just a yeah, big photo of a goat. It was a big photo of
1: a goat,
2: yeah. And it's also why you're called Kate Le Bon, because you had a friend called Nia who used to call you that. And I remember I was designing the poster and mm-hmm. we just needed to put a name on the poster. Not we,
1: because I wasn't involved.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, like, yeah. there needs to be a name, so I'm just going to put Kate Le Bon. And it was yeah. like, oh, OK, fine, whatever. And then it stuck.
1: It's stuck. But, um, but when it came to artwork for my first record, I just asked you to do it, even though I think the, my only, the only artwork you'd ever sent me <laughs> was when you were trying to woo me over email many moons ago and you would make uh, horrible collages. I did make
2: horrible... <laughs> yeah. I think there was a recurring collage of a of a gister pasty a, a ginster pasty, but like a sheriff made out of gister pasties,
1: yeah, and somehow I thought it was natural that you would then do the artwork for my first record, which you did a great job of, and then you've done the artwork ever since and artwork for lots of other people, so you kind of you owe me
2: I do yeah,
1: I owe you, you owe me,
2: <laughs> yeah, it all goes what goes around comes yeah. around i like to I like to see it that way, you know one yeah. day one day you'll ask me to produce one of your records and we can talk about fees. <laughs> oh, sure. But I do remember you asking me to do Mug Museum and, you know, I am definitely a person, somebody could ask me to do something and I'm, I'll just say that I'm able to do things that I'm not able to do and then watch videos on how to do them. I think you said, do you think you could do a record cover? And I was like, yeah, definitely. And then immediately went upstairs and Googled watched YouTube how videos. How to make a to make, cover. <laughs> yeah, Basically, <laughs> yeah. I think that's how yeah. it happened.
1: Well, it worked, eh?
2: It worked out in the end, yeah. Made a couple yeah. of quite nice sleeves.
1: Yeah. It's become important to me that you, even if you're not involved musically, you are around for the process, or you, I'll talk yeah. to you a lot about, you know, my struggles with it or what it's about or where it's come from. Because you understand me and you can probably read me better than anyone. There's, I trust that all of that is kind of put into this record cover. And I think someone said about the last one, which I thought was a really, it kind of highlighted that for me. It, it, I thought it was really beautiful, as they said, that the cover felt like the the 10th song of the record, <laughs> which I think is, you know, a really lovely thing. And a, it makes sense considering how you can funnel all of that into something that means something, you know. Mm. Yeah, but you still an asshole.
2: <laughs> yeah, you, you, you too, mate, you too. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was wondering whether, I was going to ask actually if you felt weirder not weirder but with the last with the I've never asked you this or thought about it but when we were recording my album whether you felt any differently about the sort of how you were going to work on it or what it was going to be like because of where the record came from and whether you sort of whether you sort of took that I don't know just, it just occurred to me Your now record?
1: Whether, yeah Your record is very much about grief and i obviously as one of your closest friends was close to you whilst you know that was you know these things were happening in your life and so of course i think naturally you know there was a again you know like a in the same way that tim being around was important and i felt that there was an extra layer of you know with this brutal honesty that we've spoken about there was it had to also be very delicate mm. and you know, and you know that there's this added importance to something that is already important to you, but this had an extra an extra weight. I felt it and I cried a lot, but didn't, you know, not in front of anyone. I felt the weight of it and that my job in that moment was to do the best that I could for you in, in the songs, you know. Mm. And, I, you know, I, that's not to say I wouldn't have anyway, but there was yeah, this yeah, no. real kind of, you know, um additional... And I, I think emotionally as well, you know, when it came to the mixing process and, and all that stuff, it was just a lot more em- emotional, right? And I think that oh yeah, for because sure. it I mean... was because it was me, you could show that emotion and you could allow yeah. yourself to to bend under it and to and knowing that I understood and that we didn't really need to explain or discuss mm. or you know that. And I think you know, again, it's a similar thing, isn't it? There's there's a lot that is understood. Without having to say it, and when you work with people under those conditions, it's a really beautiful and, and fruitful thing. I think.
2: Yeah, there's a sort of musical language that you already speak, so you kind of hit the ground running as well.
1: Yeah, but even just from a you know just from an emotional standpoint as well. Because yeah. It is. It is all emotional. You know, it's all mm. making music is a is a really emotional thing, and I think when you have just that, you know, that feeling that there are people in the room or people around you who understand and you don't need to explain something that is really hard to explain that's kind of why you're making the music in the first place Hmm. then it's a really really beautiful thing to be able to lean into and lean on
0: thanks for listening to the talk house podcast and thanks to hugh evans and kate Lebon for letting us in on their chat if you liked what you heard please follow talk house on your favorite podcasting platform and be sure to check out all the other podcasts in our network including jokerman craig finn's that's how i remember it and lots more This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan and the Talkhouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.